0: Good morning, and welcome back to Staying Connected. This is Katie Wright, your host, and today I have a special guest with me, Dr. Peter Byers, who's going to talk about his experience with vascular Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Uh, Peter, you've been a very special person among the community for a while, so why don't you tell us who you are?
1: Thanks. Well, I'm Peter Byers. (laughs) Um, I'm a medical geneticist at the University of Washington in Seattle. And have been involved with the vascular Ehlers-Danlos community, and um, ever since it was Ehlers-Danlos syndrome type four, um, since the mid 1970s.
0: So, how did that come about? Like, how did you guys discover that there was an Ehlers-Danlos syndrome type four?
1: Well, it wasn't us. Um, The condition was first described actually in the 1930s by. George Sack, and it was called status visc. Vis, vis, to begin with.
0: Disvascularis. Yeah. Okay.
1: And then in the 1960s, a British surgeon identified a set of people who seemed as if they had um, a form of Ellis-Dalrymple syndrome, and he thought it was distinct. And wrote a paper about it, and he was uh, his um, last name was Barabbas. And so for a while, this was called Baraba syndrome. Okay. And then uh, Peter Byton included it in his like as uh, the
0: the Byton scale. As the Byton scale, okay. right?
1: <laughs> uh, in a review of a um, hundred or so people with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome in the United in the United Kingdom that he had studied, and called it a distinct form, and it became known then as the type four um, because there was a. Severe, what's now called classic form, um, and then a milder form, and then hypermobility, and then this form. And there was a fifth form at that time that just kind of disappeared. But um, I was in the last medical school class that was going to be drafted for the Vietnam War as a physician. But there were alternative services for us, and one of them was the at the NIH in the Public Health Service. Um, and I ended up in a laboratory headed by George Martin um, that was studying collagens and collagen biology and collagen synthesis. And while during the time that I was there for three years, there were three uh, medical genetics fellows who were at Johns Hopkins. Mm-hmm. Um, that Victor McKusick sent down to study the basis of uh, inherited connective tissue disorders that he was interested in. They each brought cell strains, fibroblasts that have been grown from people. So um, Jack Lichtenstein came down and brought tissue from somebody that has turned out to have what became known as Ehlers-Danlos type 7. Which um, one is that? Well, he, he, it, it, he thought it was a dermatosporactic Form at the time, okay. but it actually was um, the arthrocholasis type. Okay. And um, Mike Sussman, who was an orthopedic surgeon, um, brought uh, cells from somebody who turned out to have type six or the kyphoscoliotic form. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then Mike Pope, uh, who, when he finished his fellowship, went back to England and established the whole Ehlers-Danlos community there. Brought cells from a young man that had. Um, the, this type 4 and studied it, and they were the ones that identified or determined that there was an abnormality in the production of type 3 collagen. So I left there after three years and had all of this in mind, went to the University of Washington as a fellow in medical genetics and also in biochemistry. and. Started seeing patients who had this. And the first person I saw was actually in Vancouver, uh, in, BC. Uh, BC. Yeah. And we had grew skin cells from her fibroblast and then studied the amount of type 3 collagen. Um, and the colleague, Karen Holbrook, uh, who is a cell biologist and electron microscopist, um, did electron microscopy in the skin, and it was very dramatic because cells in the skin, the skin fibroblasts, Mm -hmm. had huge inclusions in them.
0: What are inclusions?
1: Inclusions means that there there was material that should have been outside the cell or should have been destroyed, but was accumulating inside the cell in the secretory pathway. And type 3 collagen is ordinarily made inside the cell. Okay. And there was stuff accumulating. And when we grew the cells in culture and we looked at the type 3 collagen, we discovered that, uh, that her cells, when they were cultured, accumulated type 3 collagen inside the cells and had a secretory defect. And so there was much less outside the cells. And so we could see that um, this was all part and parcel of what was going on and then gradually over time we began to see people in there and people began sending us cells i was we studying osteogenesis imperfecta and then these other conditions at the same time we were using electron microscopy karen was doing um, as a tool to look at the structure of collagens in the skin, and also cells, and what was happening. We did it for all the different people, and we could find alterations. And then there were some people who had clinically what was a type 4, mm-hmm. now vascular EDS, um, who didn't have nearly as much storage, and they had other kinds of alterations, but we could still see abnormalities in the collagens when they were made. So we continued that on. Yeah. She, um, we, we worked together for almost 15 years, and she left to be first uh, the, uh, dean, of, uh, dean of the graduate school and vice president for research at the University of Florida, went to become the provost at the University of Georgia, and then became the president of Ohio State University. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, we're still in touch, but uh, after many years. And
0: you're still at UW? I'm still at the University of Washington.
1: Yeah, I've been there since 1974.
0: And you've been seeing patients with vascular Ehlers Danlos syndrome since the 1970s?
1: Right, so we we did that. When I finished my fellowship, I moved, I ended up with a faculty position in the Department of Pathology and then also in medicine. In medicine, I was um, seeing patients in our genetics clinic. But in pathology, I started a research lab, and the research was on trying to identify the underlying bases of um, the different forms of connective tissue disorders, primarily forms of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, okay, and also of osteogenesis imperfecta. And the person in whose lab I ended up there for a while sort of saw what I was doing, and he said, "You know." People will pay you to do this.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Are you doing it for free? (laughs)
1: Yeah, we were doing it as part of research studies, and so we Mm -hmm. set up a diagnostic laboratory, and uh, that started in the late 1970s, early 1980s, and had gradually increased the number of samples that we saw we were studying using fibroblasts almost all the time so people had to have skin biopsies Mm -hmm. and then the cells were grown from that and then sent and then we studied those.
0: So when was the major switch from the skin biopsy to like a blood test or a saliva test?
1: So we used the cells to look at the proteins and then we could uh, extract the messenger RNA from the cells Mm -hmm. and sequence that Um, and that continued as the predominant way of doing things until the um, early to mid-1990s. Mm-hmm. And the first sequencing papers for where these conditions were done in the early 1980s, but it was a more cumbersome thing. the Sequencing was done by hand. And then the automated sequences became available, and that uh, changed the course of things. Yeah. And then, beginning in the uh, late 2000s, um, the switch was from uh, standard um, sequencing one by one to next-generation sequencing, which could sequence huge numbers of genes. In fact, the genome, mm-hmm. and so that was the switch that happened then. So that's now a, a, close to a decade old, okay. and um, we made the switch gradually over time to from the. More standard kinds of sequencing to the next generation. So, were there
0: people who were tested on a skin biopsy that ended up being retested with yeah. a blood test?
1: Yeah. So we, it became easier to extract. We could, became easier to extract DNA from blood, and okay. then sequence sequence the genes from there. And um, but for in the collection of people that we had, we actually went back to the fibroblasts, extracted the RNA from them and sequence that for all but about 30 or 40 of the people that we had studied who had protein abnormalities. Um, So there's a small set of the people. I think we still have frozen cells from them where we didn't uh, do the sequencing from things that we started in the early to mid-1980s. Wow. But now it's easier instead of thawing them. and. Growing the cells and (laughs) collecting the RNA, just to get blood from people. So, of course, some of those people are no longer alive. But if they're family members, then we can we can study family members.
0: So, So you have been you and Shereen have both been very involved in the community and like the vets collaborative and everything Mm -hmm. that you're doing. And you're very communicative for doctors, you know, like comparatively (laughs) to what I've experienced. So was it always like that for you, being so involved in patients?
1: Yes. Um, I'm a medical geneticist. And so when we see people, we see families. Mm -hmm. Um, We spend, our visits in the clinic are at least an hour long um we spend our time explaining sort of the esoterica of biology to people and so we have to develop a way to talk about things in a, a way that i think is a little simpler i'm never sure <laughs> when I talk. um but We followed people, the people I saw in the clinic, we followed, and we would see people yearly, Mm -hmm. and we would see new family members and and study the extended family. So it it really became part of what we did, and Mm -hmm. and with vascular EDS, you know, I certainly became involved enough with families that I went to funerals. You know, uh, participated in all the different kinds of things in people's lives, and I I think it was because there were not a lot of physicians who understood the nature of the condition, and so I became the central point for people, Mm -hmm. and would talk to their doctors, and talk to them, and talk to family members. It was just just sort of the natural thing to do. I I went to medical school to become a psychiatrist. Really? Uh, yeah. Yeah and uh, changed course very quickly, um, because psychiatry at the time was either Freudian psychiatry or used shock therapy, and oh, I, just, no. I knew I wasn't going to do very well <laughs> either one of those, <laughs> and sort of wandered, and it, uh, I was interested first in how do you know how how does our body tell the difference between self and non-self, so the immunologic kinds of things? And so it never ended up in a laboratory that did that, but by chance happened into this laboratory at the NIH that was studying these rare conditions and then realized, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> and what I was actually was interested in was that I thought that, if you looked at advances in genetics and and in, in biology, it was from studying organisms, mm-hmm. often you know, bacteria, um, sometimes larger animals mm-hmm. that had mutations and that you could infer the functions of proteins. You could see how things worked by seeing, by studying the ones that had alterations in them or abnormalities. Mm-hmm. And I thought that that was a, something that we would gather from studying people who had these things. Um, And I think that that was correct. And that we've learned not only a lot about the conditions, but also about the biology of the molecules, Mm -hmm. (coughs) um, and about fundamental genetic aspects of things and all kinds of stuff like that. So I think all of that worked out, but a part of it was, you know, I enjoy talking to people, so.
0: <laughs>
1: and uh, you know, if you if you get people who work in laboratories and do stuff, the the, the science is great, but it's talking about it that really makes a difference. And yeah. So, so that was the sort of the natural outcome of of doing this.
0: Thank you for talking to me at 6:30 in the morning. You're welcome. <laughs>
1: you can hear the you can hear the hotel coming to yes. life as the air conditioning comes on and things like that yeah
0: we're at the uh, marfan foundation annual conference and stole a one of the little rooms at six thirty in the morning
1: right in houston kind of and we're inside because it's 100 degrees outside
0: <laughs> well, thank you for doing that
1: you're welcome
0: um so you mentioned how you've been involved with families and right. gone to funerals
1: and... So, and, and you had asked about Shireen. Um, Shireen was uh, trained as a surgeon uh, at the University of Washington. She was very interested in um, unusual aspects and became interested in genetic aspects of um, vascular disease. And I met her while she was still a fellow. Mm-hmm. and. We negotiated, and, and she, because she wanted to stay and be involved with laboratory stuff and yeah. do all that sort of stuff, and um, but in, rather than staying, because it was a, some kind of strange communication thing that <laughs> happened primarily between her and the, the head of vascular surgery there. I think mm-hmm. she ended up coming to Houston for a year, uh, worked here with uh, Diana Milowitz okay. and the vascular surgeons, and then. I think, realized that Houston was not the place for her to stay, <laughs> <laughs> the weather being the at Happy least one of the factors, <laughs> and other things happened as well. And so she arranged to come back to Seattle, yeah. and we reconnected then, and, and uh, that's now several years ago, and <clears throat> she's really been the driving force in, <clears throat> in, in getting a lot of this stuff going. Uh, and it's her energy and enthusiasm and the Nobody's going to stop me. Kind of attitude that uh, <laughs> complements my slightly more laid-back aspect of things and um, really puts it together. And so, yeah, you guys I, make a wonderful team. We, we work together, and you know, it's. And I see patients with her, and um, so and we see people who have other kinds of vascular, genetic vascular diseases. and it's been uh, you know, a wonderful work in partnership really so really i've learned a lot <laughs> and she tells me she's learned a lot so it's been <laughs> great and it's it's interesting because i think we have uh, a lot of the same style in terms of, of what we do when we see people in, the, in our clinics and it, it extends it, for both of us it extends outside the clinic so that's yeah. been that's been one of the things.
0: yeah that was a big change yeah when i met you guys it was I was afraid. I know the first couple of times I was like, well, she gave me her number, but I don't know if I should right. really use it. You know, I don't mm-hmm. want to be a burden. But then every time that I call you guys, it's just like,
1: right. we answer our own deal. phones. Yeah. <laughs> you
0: answer your own phones. And I mean, she's called mm. the hospital for but me. But we're not going to
1: leave our phone numbers here, right?
0: Now. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Um, but I mean, you guys have really been great. So like, what what are the good and the bad things that you've experienced being so, so involved in people's lives?
1: Well, the good things are, I think that it's, I think people really appreciate the idea that we're willing to spend time and talking with people. And, um, m- make time and and try to make sure that people understand what's happening. And, you know, we, I think we have the ability to see the long term and and how things play out in the long term with people and can, you know, talk about things and feel comfortable in talking about, you know, the complications of Astor EDS and, and what we do to make it different and how we try and, you know, anticipate what's going on. Which is often a difficult transition for people to make. You know, is to become you know, aware of what's available in the community, to, you know, to um, and to sort of take charge of what they uh, of what's ahead for them. Uh, you know, this is this is how you work, um, but it isn't true for everybody. But um, sort of shepherding people through that process has been you know, really very gratifying and. I it's always striking how much people appreciate what we do. And it's funny because, you know, it's it's one of those things where we don't think, I don't think either of us thinks we're doing something special, we're just doing what we do. And yet to have people say, wow, this is really <laughs> great, um, you know, I mean, there's nothing, there's not very much that's like that yeah. in, in the world and and having constant, you no know, appreciation for the kinds of things we do is really an enormous return that I don't think either one of us anticipated. I mean, surgeons get get that because <laughs> they you know they do things to people, and geneticists um, talk to people and explain stuff. And I don't always realize how different that is. Uh, it was one of these things that was peculiar about fifteen years or so. When we were finished, people would leave the room. This is this is in, in the genetics clinic. Yeah. And as they left, they would say, "Thank you for your time." Uh, I thought that was really strange because, you know, <laughs> they're paying for the time. <laughs> it's, uh, but I realized that they were seeing somebody who understood what they had, knew a fair amount about it, um, and was just willing to sit and talk and listen. And the listening is probably the most important part of what it is. Yeah. And to deal with the anxieties and, you know, find ways through it and do all of those kinds of things. So all of those, I mean, those are the really very satisfying things about it. And I think the the most difficult part is we lose people. And, um, you know, we we are part of... For many people, we're part of the family in, in a sense uh, because we know everybody in the family, and you know that's um, that's not an easy part of it. And, you know, we we know that it will happen, and it's we'll gird our loins and <laughs> sort of go on. But um, by being part of that process as well, um, and being there when the family is going through. The grief that we share um it's um it it again is one of the things that sort of is part of what we do and it's part of what what makes this a human effort i like
0: that human effort it is i mean i I remember asking shireen about that um i think it was you know maybe almost a year ago Mm -hmm. how do you do this (laughs) like how do you because i was really starting to get more connected in the Mm-hmm. and then I would see things and I asked her and I'm like how because you, she, you guys are like family to me now mm-hmm. like it's it's over you're already family it's done right. <laughs> you can't do anything <laughs> about it but um, sorry
1: so <laughs> yeah, uh, we realize that I mean I, I certainly realize it and I think Shireen does as well,
0: yeah. as well so I remember asking her I'm like how is it for you when you mm-hmm. when you lose someone and she's like it's like losing family I right. just I am so appreciative. Of uh-huh. You guys continuing to do, it, do this for us. And I know you get a, a good amount of appreciation from it from everybody, but I don't know if you really can understand how much it means to us.
1: I think we do. I, mean, I think that. I hope so. Right.
0: <laughs> like, words just can't express it enough. Uh, so. well, thank you. You're welcome. Um, Because I just had an emotional moment.
1: <laughs> well, you can rest for a while, and then we can think I drink about it. to drink a cup of coffee, right? Especially made in the hotel.
0: <laughs> well, that was pretty funny. I could tell people about that. Yeah. <laughs> I thought I woke up at like four forty-five, and I thought that there wasn't a coffee maker in my room, which I thought was a very cruel joke. Mm-hmm. And so I went down to the hotel lobby, and I said, "Hey, you know, I need some coffee." And they're like, "Well, it's nothing open till 7. I'm like, 7? I cannot wait." until 7 o'clock for coffee. That's insane. What do you guys... Right. So there should be one in your room. I'm like, no, there's really not one in my room. So I'm like halfway on a walk, you know, right. half a mile down the street to Starbucks and I'm texting Peter and Peter's like, there's a coffee maker <laughs> in your room. It's in the drawer under the TV. I'm like, why would it be there?
1: Right, exactly. That's what I thought when I found mine.
0: <laughs> so I turned around and get that. So it was a pretty funny morning, but... Makes for a very
1: early morning. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I think that you know the um, this community is a very tight community in, in ways that are hard to see and um, you sometimes don't see it. And so, and you know, from both of our perspectives, I think you know um, that the community has arisen in part because their uh, people do experience losses yeah. and, and I think that uh, you know Kathy Bowen has been an integral part in bringing the communities together and she and other moms who had lost their kids yeah. um, really were devoted to the idea that they, they would be able to do something that would somehow someday uh, result in um, making sure that these kinds of things didn't happen. I mean, or that it would happen when we were, when everybody in the community was appropriately aged, <laughs> <laughs> and the, you know that kind of work is um, is beginning to come to fruition. And I think that it's um, it's really the remarkable efforts, and it's a it's a network that people in the community know about, and, it, and it's you know you don't always refer to. Um, people who have these rare conditions as being a community, yeah. but it's an online community. It's an in-person community. It's people visit, people talk. I think it's changed uh, with uh, social media. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, the Facebook things.
1: The Facebook things. that Kathy's going to show me about oh, later, Is that later what you this guys morning. Yeah. About? <laughs> <laughs> Over breakfast, she's going to show me the Facebook. Page oh my
0: and, gosh. <laughs> and, uh,
1: So um, uh, I made her promise that she would do that because I was looking at the website as part of looking at the websites for all the members of uh, of the collaborative that uh, Shereen has been instrumental in putting together and I thought that this website needs a little buffing (laughs) and so I said that to her and she said oh yeah. We really don't use it very much. There's just a, enough information to get to the Facebook page. And then the Facebook page is where everything happens. Yes. So, <laughs> since I don't have a Facebook account.
0: Uh, <laughs> or Twitter. Yeah, Facebook page yeah. has been... There's a Facebook group like, specifically for people yeah. with genetically confirmed buds and yeah. it's been amazing. Yeah. I don't remember who grabbed me and put me in that. Uh-huh. It might have been emily
1: uh-huh.
0: ranta like back when i was first diagnosed because yeah, yeah. i remember posting in like the ehlers-danlos forum like uh-huh. oh, i was just diagnosed with with vascular type and then she messaged me oh, interesting. i think she. That was when I was still. Uh, I wasn't diagnosed yet. I was still in my like you four months.
1: Right <laughs> in the Odyssey.
0: Just <laughs> kidding. And, find and then after I got confirmed, somebody yeah. put me in there, and that was just,
1: yeah, just amazing. To yeah, she's. To know. A, I think she's a, a devotee of the of the internet stuff as yeah. well. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think. I think for everybody of your generation, um, is it's become the way of communicating with people. And, and you know i don't need to be part of it um, because I think that so much of the the value of it is actually the person to person communication among the people who are affected with the condition and that um, it's you know, it's always interesting to watch how that works so remember we had as after the collaborative meeting we had a, a family gathering yeah. and It was really interesting because here were members of 20 families or so most of whom had never met anybody outside their own family or in the cases where they were the only person other people who had this and we started off and we were planning to start the meeting about nine (laughs) o'clock and people were sort of continuing to wander in and within about five to ten minutes the room was just alive Mm -hmm. and it was buzzing away and everything then we had a couple of scientific talks, and I think it was you that stood up and said, "You know, enough of this science stuff. We need to talk." <laughs> and, um, and that it, it, it again you just watched, and and people, you know, drew everybody out. And there were there were um, family members there who had lost their son. There were people who were affected. There were uh, people who were relatively newly. Uh, diagnosed, there were people who, you know, had long-term jobs that, um, you know, they were in their forties, fifties, were there, and yeah. and so it, that being it, for people being able to see that whole range of what was going on, and I think it just was astonishing, and and I think that y- you don't see that in many other communities, and this is a community that's vibrant and. Um, it's striking, and you know there are a lot of very smart people and very connected people in this group, and they take advantage of this. Not everybody does it, but yeah. I mean having it available is really, um, I think, an amazing resource in the in the community.
0: Yeah, I had one of those moments last night when we were upstairs uh-huh. on the in the executive yeah. lounge or whatever it was. It was a meeting for people with beds, and yeah. I remember I had stopped for a minute to get like a piece of. Them. Piece of fudge or something like that. <laughs> and then I turn around and I was just like, I didn't insert myself in any conversations. I just kind of stood there mm-hmm. looking around at everybody. And it's just so heartwarming yeah. to see. Like you do hear, it gets really, really loud. Yeah. <laughs> and you're just like, I love all of these people. Mm-hmm. And the whole thing is just amazing to watch. Like everybody get connected. There are people mm-hmm. here who I've never met that mm-hmm. were newly diagnosed. And there's one girl here who's, I think she's 12. And her whole family is basically here with her, and yeah. she's the first one. Yeah. And it's just amazing, the mm-hmm. amount of community. Like, yeah. Before long, everybody's mm-hmm. got each other's number, and we're all, yeah. you know, it's like we're best friends as uh-huh. soon as we meet, and it's amazing.
1: Yeah. And I think that, you know, for Kathy last night, who was here and yeah. um, received an award from, from, or recognition from the Marfan Foundation, um, because she had been so much of a, an integrator, and her role was very much like the woman who really brought the the Marfan Foundation to the place where it is now, that she had said she knows so many people by voice, by, you know, um, notes, by things like that, sometimes by pictures, but she's met so few of them. Um, and part of it is because, um, there hasn't been a home for meetings for people and i think that you know what what's coming out of this collaborative which is a you know the group that has brought together the smaller you know kathy's group the which is largely the facebook group and um the groups put together so the defy foundation from the devancy brothers and um then the Fight EDS group from the Yasek family, and um, then Annabelle's Challenge is part of it, and, and the Ayles Dallas Society has been part, and the Marfan Foundation has been part. That all of this is providing, I think, is providing now what becomes a more natural home for people yeah. and bringing them together. And I, I think that that will be, that this is the lasting benefit of you know, the transition from Kathy's, you know, this. An electronic network of people that, you know, gets together, you know, over the, you know, by electrons, yeah. <laughs> and then, and then having people get together in person.
0: It's so exciting. Yeah. I really, I feel like we're right on the edge yeah. of just, like, it completely bursting and yeah. just yeah. so excited yeah. for it. Yeah, I
1: think that the, you know, I, I think there's palpable enthusiasm now that, um, and the transformation, I think that now the development of animal models for vascular Ehlers-Danlos A- Syndrome, the testing for uh, drugs on the basis of uh, understanding molecular pathways that are involved, mm-hmm. and the anticipation that we'll be able to start you know, trying some of these medications, seeing how well they work, um, having more realistic trials of even including drugs like soliprol, um are all things that are coming out of this renewed enthusiasm. It's bringing new people who have not really been part of the scientific community into it. Um, and I think that uh, it's, a, you know, it's a transforming time um, and we've seen really a, a dramatic difference over, you know, over the last few years. Yeah. I think it's, you know, we'll see a lot of things happen in the next few years. So, I, so exciting! <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think it really is. I mean, it's you know, it's exciting for you because you're you're seeing, you're looking at what's going to make a difference for me, and it's exciting for me because I think it's it's sort of seeing seeing the application of what we know about the biology into looking at um, ways of making differences for people. Uh, you know, that's just you know, that's the other part. I had started off, as I said before, I had started off very much in trying to understand what was happening Mm -hmm. and knew that I was not going to be very good at trying to figure out how to fix it, (laughs) but that there are other people for whom that's really their passion. And we're seeing that happening. And now everybody's coming together. And
0: now everybody's
1: coming together. Yeah. So exciting. Yeah, it is. It it really is. it's a remarkable time now for this, for, for the group.
0: Uh, well, Is there anything else that you want to mention or talk about?
1: Well, so as part of the collaborative, uh, we're doing the natural history study, which is trying to get a much better idea of what happens. Um, we have two large studies that have been done, one by the French group and one by us mm-hmm. that have used different ways of looking at what people can expect. This is one where we can take advantage of now the electronic um, ability to you know put records in one place and really begin to look very carefully at what's been happening with people get a much more uh, detailed idea including people's own stories you know, so that people can provide their own narrative of their lives and what's happened which is a very important part because you know people see things in themselves that physicians don't always ask about mm-hmm. and to try and capture that's really very important so that's part of the um, the natural history study that's part of the collaborative and you can find that online mm-hmm. and um, VETS participate that's collaborative right and um, so it's veds mm-hmm. collaborative i think it's not case sensitive nope. um, .org <laughs> and it gets you into how the the natural history study is working how you how everybody can contribute to it and uh, get medical records. We're hoping to get at least 1,000 people involved. And you know, we have a database that's got about 1,500 people in it that we're trying to figure out how to transfer in, into this database as well.
0: How many people in the US do you think have funds?
1: I think that there are probably about 5,000 people. Okay. Maybe, maybe more. We've, I think that the frequency, We see the more severely affected end of the spectrum. Um, And so for, uh, and it's a very diverse condition. If you look at mutations in type three collagen, there are people who you can spot instantly when you're walking down the street, that's always embarrassing, (laughs) But, uh, (laughs) um, but walk in the door, and. We refer to some people as having a walk in the door diagnosis, Mm. um, something we have to teach our fellows, our trainees, how to look and what to see. And then others who, even with a mutation in my hand, um, I would not be able, just on the basis of clinical findings alone and examination, be able to make a a clear diagnosis. And that depends then on family history and their their own personal history of what's happened. To get to that point, so there are a lot of people that we miss because it doesn't get that translation doesn't get turned it wasn't fit, turned the, into the initial right, picture. right and yeah. you know the pictures that people see are the really outliers on the much more severe end and, mm-hmm. you know seeing people who look you know, like everybody else yeah. is always startling when they come with the diagnosis but. Um, it's uh, so there are a lot of people we haven't counted uh, in this, and we know, for example, that about three to four percent of people that we've in whom we've identified mutations have what we call null copies of the gene. that is one copy of the gene doesn’t work, and they have a much milder presentation. When we look at osteogenesis imperfecta, for example, the mild form of that which also involves the inactivation of one copy of the gene Mm -hmm. for mutations in that gene in people with OI, that class of mutation represents between 35 and 40% of all the people with mutations. So we're missing that whole set of people with uh, vascular EDS or with mutations in type 3 collagen genes. And we expect to find them. And then if we look at the proportion of you know, even more other mutations which affect the structure of the protein. Mm-hmm. There are classes of mutations which are way underrepresented compared to what we would so expect. There so there are many more out there. And those involve more subtle changes in protein structure. So they have much less in the way of presentation.
0: So it would be nice if we had like 5,000 people End up in this natural history
1: study. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think we'll get there that that quickly. Not that quickly,
0: but but, I mean, in the long term, it would be wonderful to, because it feels to me like we've got a great community of people Mm -hmm. online and several hundred people, but nowhere near the fifteen hundred. You know, nowhere near two thousand even. So Mm -hmm. it's hard. It's you know, you know that there's people out there Mm -hmm. that still need the community or are maybe living and have no idea that this community is even out here right you know and like i'm always struggling with like how do i yeah. reach those people you know i look on my youtube channel and i can see like where people yeah. have watched my yeah. videos from and it's like a lot of the middle parts of the united states are just like
1: are barren are barren <laughs> <laughs> somebody,
0: though from idaho no is wasn't idaho they were from Uh, One of the I states, but it's not it's not common, Mm -hmm. you know. Like usually, I meet somebody from Washington or California Mm -hmm. or like Baltimore. They're near Mm -hmm. major areas, you know. Mm -hmm. So like you know that there are people living in those more rural areas Mm -hmm. that have no idea and are not connected. And it's like, how do we reach those Mm -hmm. people and really get it, get them in? Mm -hmm. But it's been amazing. Like I'm just hoping that as this, as now we have more of a home to meet mm-hmm. and get together and, and do more things, that gradually it'll just happen. Mm-hmm. You know, people will Google yeah. beds and actually come across events, meetings. The collaborative
1: or and, the, and all and the, and the other kinds of things. That's yeah, collaborative. It's very yeah.
0: exciting, so.
1: And one of the ways that, you know, for a long time, I think we were probably the major laboratory in the country that uh, would identify people. but. Mm-hmm. Um, a number of other laboratories now do the testing, uh, including, you know, Invitae and GeneDx and yeah. Connected Tissue Gene Test has done it for a long time. And, um, so one of the ways that we have of finding people that we haven't found, mm-hmm. although sometimes families have one leg in our lab and one leg in somebody <laughs> else's lab, um, or maybe it's the arm, the <laughs> biopsies are different. but. Um, um, we are in contact with them, trying to get them to approach the people they've identified and have them contact us for the collaborative and for the natural history study. So I think that that will also be, you know, I think we will find perhaps half as many people, again, out there who've had confirmatory, confirmatory testing and be able to bring them into the community and they will then bring their families. And I think that that will get us more. Mm-hmm. It's, but it still is a matter of recognition, and you know somebody has to think about the diagnosis in order to do the testing. Yeah. And that's the next step, <laughs> or a next step. Is one of the next uh, steps. Yeah.
0: I would really like to see like all all of the emergency rooms just really, mm-hmm. you know, and primary care physicians. Like I don't know how many times yeah. throughout my life I came. You know, like, why can you see all my veins? Mm-hmm. I too much iron in my blood? No, it's not a thing. Mm-hmm. There's so many little things that if the primary care physicians are more educated on what it looks like or, mm-hmm. you know, even not even looks like, but if you're having complications and you don't look like mm-hmm. somebody that meets, like, the initial clinical picture,
1: but you know, one recognizing of, that. Yeah, one of the places that um, we, we know is starting early is one of the major manifestations that people present with is unexplained bruising mm-hmm. and so the traditional pathway in pediatrics would be the person sees a you know the family sees a hematologist they do the typical studies for bruising and uh, they measure platelets and they measure clotting factors and then they stop <laughs> and they say well maybe you have a form of Willebrand's disease that we just can't capture." Or, or we just, or you just have something. But there's not yet the routine of going from that failed diagnostic Too pathway to the next one, which is a genetic test. Yeah. And we have people now that are beginning to work in the hematology community, in the pediatric hematology community, that are saying, you know, this is, this is the next way to go. And to include that in the ordinary workup for undiagnosed cruising in people and kids that don't have other dramatic findings so I I think that that'll be a that that will be another way of of getting into the the community and you know this is so we can get there before there are dramatic Mm -hmm. events that occur Um, but that that again is a matter of the hematologists have not been part of this community up until now and we're beginning to see them come in so in pediatric hematology great yeah
0: well thank you again for doing this at 6 30 in the morning you're very welcome
1: (laughs) well we've succeeded in taking you know quite a long time to get there that's great thanks thank you thank you for doing all of this because um you know your voice and your presence in the community has really made a big difference for people And they have some place to go, and they see somebody who is making a difference. And I think it's inspired other people to do the same sorts of things and to become part of things. And, you know, you've had touchstones in the community for people, um, or touch people, or, you know, however we say it, but people who have been very important to you. And I think that what you've done is to spread that and to make it possible for you've become another one of the touchstone people in, in the community. And both through the you know the the podcast but also through your videos and things of that sort that really get people aware of what's happening think about allow them to think about themselves and and allow them to see you know somebody who is a a vibrant active person (laughs) and is you know know, and talks about you know the anxieties the fears the you know the successes and and that you know, the, these are success stories. And I think that that makes a big difference. And you know, having that come into the community is really a very, very important thing. And it's, you know, it augments the kinds of things that Kathy's doing. It augments the kinds of things that we're doing at the, at the more professional levels. And I think it's, you know, these are the things that make a difference. Thank you. So, you're <laughs>
0: All right, I'm going to go cry now. All right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. This was Staying Connected, and this is Katie. Um, interviewing Dr. Peter Byers who is amazing and agreed to do this at 6:30 in the morning <laughs> uh, stay tuned for more episodes this one was a special episode I have episodes coming out on the last Sunday of every month so if you haven't subscribed yet go ahead and hit your subscribe button or just pay attention to the website when it comes out and share it with people so we can raise awareness thank you and I'll talk to you soon anatomy of an ad